Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Seven. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, I, after graduate school in Iowa, I wanted to live in a different part of the country for a couple of years. So I looked around and accepted a job at the University of Rhode Island and stayed there for 25 years um, doing various things. I was head of a curriculum research and development center. I spent a year as interim affirmative action officer. I was dean of a college. I spent three years interim dean of the library. Um, and along the way, I had an opportunity to um, first go, be a team member on um, visits for then uh, MEAF, New England Association of Schools and Colleges, and then team chair. And then I served on the commission for six years and chaired it. And then did some other things for a while, including chairing some more teams, and had a chance to work um, at the commission and um, was thrilled to do that because it really intrigues me. I, I love figuring out um, different colleges and universities. We have a glorious mix of them here in New England. The distances are fairly small. <laughs> I lived in Wyoming, so I know that's not true in every part of the country. Um we, we, we drive to each other most of the time, so we avoid the joys of domestic air travel almost all the time. Um, and um, it's, it, you know, for somebody who's as intrigued as I am with higher education and the, and the different kinds of institutions and what the changes in society mean and watching leadership, it's a, it's a very fascinating position to be in. Um, our commissioner... <laughs> Probably not, no. Probably not. Wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Our commission accredits um, 220 colleges and universities in the six New England states, and somebody wants to say, you have all those funny little states up there, and they are, most of them, quite small, including Rhode Island, where I lived for 25 years, which I call the state you can leave by accident, because I, I know that. I've done it in two different directions. Um, uh, all the way to Maine, which is, uh, in square miles, Maine is just about the size of the other five states put together. And then we also accredit five, um, I'm sorry, 11 uh, American-style institutions in other countries. Lots of history here. I think that's right. Um, a lot of people are who in this business in in New England and in the upper Midwest are familiar with a book by Nathan Graw, G-R-A-W-E, called Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. And I think if any of your listeners are interested in this topic, it's a it's an amazing resource. Um, he looks at demographic projections of um, basically he's interested in 18 year olds, and of course that's 
that's where the change is. Um, and a lot of institutions also serve adults either um, on ground or online. But the changes for 18-year-olds are very dramatic in several of the New England states. And the farther north you go, the more dramatic it is likely to get. That's right. That's right. And one of the things that the commission has seen is that, um, and Vermont is uh, an excellent example of this, unfortunately, is that when a small college closes, um, it, it is obviously very hard on the students and, and the faculty and the staff who work there. Um, it, it's difficult for the alums, but it's also very difficult for the local community because they have this campus that was um, a major employer in town. Uh, often it was um, a cultural center and athletic facilities available to the community often um, and provided a lot of, um, you know, activity for the small businesses in town and the practitioners in town. So it's it's very hard on the local community. We had a, co a couple colleges close in the Boston area, and while that was very difficult for the students and the faculty and staff and the alums and it was not hard on the community because there's so many other things going on in the Boston area. And and then with go ahead. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And and we also see a difference between uh, public and independent uh, colleges and universities. Um, New England has had a compared to some other parts of the country. New England has had a very small number of for-profit institutions. We're down to three that we accredit right now. There at one point there were six or seven. Um, but the, but because higher because this is a you know a part of the country that was settled for a long time. Um, there are a lot of colleges and universities, and there just hasn't been that market space so much for for-profits, which tend to be newer, at least the publicly traded ones. Um, but with the public institutions, um, those, I don't know anyone in New England who is contemplating closing a public university campus. And in fact, uh, we had a, there was a community college in Connecticut about three years ago that had an instructional location that they wanted to close. And by federal regulation, they needed to present a teach-out plan to the commission and have that approved. So they called us up. We walked them through it. They made their teach-out plan. They took it to the commission. The commission approved it. We called them up and said, you know, you're all set. They called back and we'll send, them, send you a letter. They called back in about two or three weeks and said, we're not closing the location. What happened? The legislature passed a law saying they couldn't close it. So I, I think that speaks to how, you know, tied to the local community, these places are, even an instructional location, let alone a freestanding college. Um, so when the demographic challenges hit public institutions, it's harder because, again, I, I don't hear anybody talking about closing them. There, there has been one merger um, 
or one and a half, depending on how you count. But in Vermont, there were two state colleges, Johnson State College and Linden State College, that merged. And um, as I like to say, they decided to forego the one-time opportunity to become Linden Johnson State. And instead, they instead became Northern Vermont University. So that's that's a combination. And they're about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes apart. Um, one of them, happily, one of them had a more liberal arts uh, focus, and the other one had more of a focus on um, professional programs. So it was a complementary merger, which, in my observation, is easier than if they had both had the same array of programs. Um, if you have a law school and I have a law school and we try to merge, we're going to, you know, tussle over who has the best approach to having a law school. But if you have a law school and I have a dentistry school, it's much easier. Right. So he's got a lot of nice charts in there. And, and one of the things that we see, and, and this will affect, I think, just about everyone, is that in 2008, people started having fewer babies. So in 2026, right now we see a graph that's, you know, headed downhill. And then 2026, it takes a sharp turn um, and declines at a, at a faster rate because, you know, there's nothing there's nothing you can do about now to have more 12-year-olds right now so that there are more 18-year-olds in 2026. No. Wow. Yeah, I think. You know, we're starting to hear, and I think we'll hear it at increasing volume for all but the most elite uh, PhD programs where people have traditionally aspired to be faculty members. Um, there's going to be, that's going to be very disruptive. And in a lot of places, you know, those PhD programs count on the, the PhD students to teach freshmen. So that's another disruption. And um, if you're in an urban area, you can always find adjuncts. If you're in an isolated area, that's hard. That may affect things being offered more online. It's, it's really hard to project everything that's going to happen. I think we're learning that one of the things that the commission has spent a fair amount of time talking about is the importance of the governing board. Um, being realistic, uh, understanding what the demographics are, understanding what the finances are, um, understanding in a realistic sense what the capacity of the institution is to take on new things. Um, one of the institutions that in New England that closed recently had planned to start a physician assistant program, and um, it would have been uh, arguably a very good addition, but the specialized accreditor there requires an institution by way of protecting students. They require the institution to have the facilities built, the faculty hired, and the curriculum done before they will approve admitting a first-year class. 
And so this institution spent a lot of money, bought a building, refurbished it, hired faculty, did the curriculum, and the specialized creditor said no. And that was a very hard blow to recover for. So the capacity of the board as well as the administration to understand risk and capacity, I think, is a, is a major lesson. That, that hurts. That's absolutely right. In, in Massachusetts, there was, um, and your listeners can find a lot about it online, there was, there was a school that closed precipitously um, in spring of 2018. In April, Mount Ida College announced that it would close after commencement that spring. And um, it, it was a, it's a long story, not a very pretty story. Um, but Massachusetts is willing and able to fund a robust state government, and several branches of that government sprang into action. Um, the governor's legislation, um, the attorney general's office did an investigation, the consumer people got involved, and the Board of Higher Education and Department of Higher Education got involved. And just um, in November, I think it was, they passed legislation that um, will set up a system of financial screening of all independent colleges and universities in Massachusetts, and, and that number is like 77. So there, there's a lot of independent higher education in, in Massachusetts. Um, the um, we are our commission right now is um, in the process, um, consistent with the law, of uh, talking with the Mass Department of Higher Education that our commission be the one to do the initial screening. Um, and that was in part because our commission has spent a lot of time looking at uh, the financial conditions of colleges and universities. If you go to our website, um, you can see there's a section on, in there uh, for the public on closed and merged institutions. So <laughs> colleges in Massachusetts, there have been colleges coming and going for a long time. So our commission has a lot of experience there. Um, we also have a greater ability to keep things confidential than, than state government does. Um, and so what we're talking to them about is that our commission would do the screening and if, if uh, certain thresholds were met, certain judgments made, because it's not all just quantitative information, there needs to be qualitative information uh, considered as well, then our commission would alert the state and the state would uh, figure out how to monitor and make sure that if a teach-out plan was warranted that the institution was compelled to do that. I think well, that's a great question because, you know, I think it is, um, I, I think it would be a good thing for faculty and staff to, you know, understand the basic outlines of the demographic issue and to, a lot of colleges and universities tend to be fairly stable places. And in some cases, there is going to need to be some significant change. Um, what some places have done is to have, um, they've had a traditional campus-based operation and they have um, uh, um, continuing education and their online programs that offer uh, operate under slightly different governance arrangements um, that provide some stability um, in the traditional operation, but perhaps a greater ability to be agile and entrepreneurial in the um, markets for particularly adult education. 
um, one of the things that you can find is estimates by state of the number of adults who have, quote, some college but no degree. And that's really a hard problem. Um, it, there's evidence to indicate that a lot of these people who who are in that situation left a college or university because it, it didn't work very well for them the first time. And so um, it's often difficult to figure out a way to motivate people to come back and let's try this again. But we know that the economic return for individuals um, for degrees is, is considerable um, over the decades. And so there's, you know, personal reasons, there's economic reasons um, to want to have a more um, educated citizenship, citizenry, and um, educated workforce. Right. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be under strain because you know that is a very long commitment to make these days, and um, you know the ad, adjunct faculty um, are easier to find in some places than others. They're easier to find probably online um, in places where they, there are not a lot of people you know down the street who could be a good adjunct. Um, I think we may see there's something in between, you know, a rolling contract of three, five, x number of years. Um, that provides um, some, you know, reasonable amount of security for the individual and balances that with some potential flexibility for the institution. Um, obviously, there are places that have collective bargaining agreements, and that, you know, that's going to be very hard to undo. Um, and and in some cases, those collective bargaining agreements are only for tenured or tenure track faculty members, and for in some cases, at least, they are for everyone who teaches, and and that that could be very difficult. Right, and then there are some places that have um, a, a track for, and I think they, they can, in some cases, probably tendered, in some cases not, but a track for full-time teaching faculty, which is sort of a, a middle ground. It's, you know, it, it can provide X amount of security where X varies. Right, but probably... Right, and often they have... Um, expectation to teach more than a tenure track and ex lower expectations for 
scholarly productivity. <laughs> I'm, I am in several probably. I think one is um, has to do with making sure that there's the right expertise around the table of the governing board. My predecessor used to say that most boards want good news and a good meal. And I think, you know, a good meal is still possible, but all the news is going to be good. And figuring out how to have the right talent around the board, around the table, um, how to keep people up to date, how to walk that line between, you know, being informed, asking the right questions, making sure the strategy is right, but not stepping into management. We've seen um, cases where um, an institution has, crisis may be too strong, but a disruption and the board takes on a stronger role in the interim until things get stabilized again. And that, and that can be very important and helpful. Um, but then walking back from that is not always so easy. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is I'm struck by um, the great advantage of um, professional associations and having a group of colleagues, um, some of whom will probably be competitors, but that's okay. Just being able to learn from people. And, and, you know, we have among the 220 colleges and universities, occasionally I run into a place that seems isolated. And I think that's a hard thing for, for the president not to have that group of top peer colleagues to, um, you know, some commiseration, yes, but also some, oh, there's a good idea. We couldn't do it that way, but it gives me an idea about something that we could do. Um, so staying connected and, and having that, that group, I think, is important. Well, yeah. Is that based on credit hours, or do you know how they counted that? But however they counted it, it's a big change. I think, well, it depends on who was in the pool. Of, I mean, community colleges, I think, at least around here, have probably tended to have higher um, percentages of part-time um, than some of the other places. Another thing for, yeah, presidents, um, two, two things that we frequently recommend to new presidents, and we don't have any particular contact with either one of them or relationship with either one, um, one is that the Harvard Grad School of Ed runs, um, I call it famous president school. It's a, it's a, uh, gathering for new presidents either before the first year or before the second year. Um, it's, um, about, I think four or five days now. And what we consistently hear from that, from the people who attend is that the content was good, but the, uh, relationships were that they developed the contacts that they can stay in touch with were equally valuable. So that's one. And another one is um, the Association of Governing Boards, I think twice a year, runs a retreat session for presidents and board chairs. 
and you know it's it's structured and as you might imagine a lot of the value comes from the time together to think about you know the the institution and what are the challenges and what are the opportunities there and to have conversations that are probably um, easier to have in that setting than they might be just in the normal course of events. How many, how many public institutions are there? Eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. One of the things I've learned in this job, and it was said well by someone, I wish I could remember who, was if you've seen one system, you've seen one system. Yeah, yeah. We have one of the... One of the interesting things that's a little bit in motion right now in New England is that um, the university system of Maine governing board at its meeting two weeks from yesterday is going to consider making a request to our commission that we accredit the system as opposed to the, depending on how you count, six or seven institution universities individually. Um, and that's because they have a very steep decline in the number of traditional students. They have um, a large desire to um, make sure that adults with quote, some college and no degree can have access to programs. They, they are the only place really in New England that has what other parts of the country would consider significant distance. Um, and they want to, because of distance education, they increasingly want to have academic programs that are offered by courses uh, housed at multiple institutions. And while our commission can figure out how to fulfill our responsibilities, if they do some of that, if they get really good at it and they want to get good at it, then their academic programs will be so intertwined that when we send a team to an individual campus, we can't tell who's responsible for what. But if we credit, if they request that the commission accredit the system, and the commission has indicated they're open to doing that, if the system can demonstrate how it meets the standards, then that that um, provides them with more opportunities to figure out how collectively to serve the people of Maine, which I think would be an exciting opportunity. Go ahead. 
Right. So we had in New England, we have Southern New Hampshire University, which, <laughs> which you know, started as founded in downtown Manchester as a place, and there and there were certainly a lot of these in New England and probably other parts of the country that sort of taught basic um, accounting and bookkeeping and office skills, um, and then they built a campus, moved to a campus, and were. Uh, um, you know, uh, doing okay, and then they have a they got a new president several years ago who's really um, created a, a amazing um, online programs. They have an enrollment significantly over a hundred thousand now. They have the first um, uh, direct assessment program approved by the federal government and by a regional accreditor, and that's where students. Um, unbound by the strictures of the semester can move at their own pace through a competency-based program. Um, they're doing some very interesting and creative things. They employ, and I wish I could remember the number of data analysts that they have who can figure out ways to look at signals that students are sending that mean that they're likely to be successful in the course or that that, that the university may want to have somebody ring them up, as it were, and make sure that they are on track or can get back on track. They, they devote a lot of resources to that. Um, they are, their president was on our commission, so he certainly understands um, regional accreditation. He has been very uh, open with the commission. He, they had their comprehensive evaluation um, a couple years ago, and they, he, um, he made sure, as we did, but together we made sure that it was going to be, you know, a, a rigorous and um, thorough review of what they did by a, an expert team that was drawn partly from New England, but partly from other parts of the country as well. So I think, you know, part of part of what we see anytime higher ed changes is that regional accreditation needs to make sure that it, it can figure out ways to make sure that um, its processes for looking at, for example, Southern New Hampshire are as rigorous as looking those that look at, um, you know, a small, successful liberal arts college somewhere in another state. And that's, by the way, you know, regional accreditation is in, is so heavily dependent on volunteers. Um, we have we have a small staff of about there are about eleven and a half of us right now. Don't ask me which one's the half, and. Um, and each year we enjoy the talents of about 600 volunteers. And part of what makes this work is that, is that particularly with all the changes going on now, being on an evaluation team or being a commissioner, both of those experiences are real work. Um, but they are also, I've heard several people say, the best professional development that they could have. I remember a few years ago calling a president from, out of the region who chaired a team for us and it wasn't an easy visit and I called to thank him and he said, you don't need to thank me. He said, I, I quit going to conferences and, and he said, this is the best professional development I can get. 
So our, you know, our team members and team chairs work hard at what they do. Our commissioners certainly work hard um, at what they do. They meet four times a year for two days, and they have one retreat. And for the last three years, they've had a second one. And we give them a lot of encouragement <laughs> to come to our annual meeting and um, participate in that. And the commission meetings that they go to take preparation time. So it's, it is a very significant commitment. To make for people in higher ed, and we, by federal regulation, have public members who have, you know, no relationship with an institution of higher education, nor does anybody in their immediate family, and so that's an even greater level of commitment to this enterprise. Um, it, it's really quite remarkable. Well, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, yeah, are you familiar with NC Sarah? Um, and I'm not going to, okay. NC Sarah is a, um, and I'm not going to be as good at this as I should be, so I apologize in advance, but it, it is an attempt to get at that very question, and it, it's a, I call it a private workaround to an awkward federal regulation. Um, but the federal government, the Department of Ed, wanted to make sure that if a student in Utah was um, taking a course in from Southern New Hampshire University and there was a problem, that they 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 would have a way to deal with the state um, and have that problem addressed as well as they could if they were attending a, a college on the ground in a, a given state. And so, NC Sarah. Uh, and it's in, I think it's in, as in Nancy C hyphen S-A-R-A, and you can, you can look it up. It's, um, it's a mechanism that was set up by Wichi and Nebi and, um, you know, the regional state consortia, basically, and now it's its own organization, and it has, um, invited and vetted, uh, states to join it, and everybody but California now is in. Massachusetts, <laughs> Was the, was the other one that was, it was last other than California, which is not in, um, thinking that Massachusetts, you know, didn't have all that much to learn from other people, unfortunately. But they're in now. Um, California, not so much. Um, but it's, it's designed to get at that real question. You know, how do you do that? And I think for, um, accreditation teams, if they visit an institution that has significant numbers of students online, part of what the team does is figure out a way to hear from students. And so that part, hearing from students, it doesn't really matter if they're down the street or across the country, if they're studying online from the accreditor's point of view. But from the consumer protection point of view, that's where NC Sarah comes in. Since 2015, I think we've had 
I think it's um, 14 closures and nine mergers. So we've had a lot of activity. There's, there's something else going on here that I think is an important part of the equation, and that is a, a couple of years ago I read a book called The 100-Year Life, and it starts with um, what they assert is a, quote, fact that a baby born in the U.S. today has a projected lifespan of 106 years. So the idea of, um, you know, going to college and graduating when you're 21 or 22 and then working and retiring with enough money to live on when you're 65, those days are over. And so, you know, there are places that are talking about subscription models to education. And, and we've got a couple in New England. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure I can remember exactly which ones they are. But if you graduate from our institution, then you can take, and I'm going to make this up, one course per year free from us forever. Um, that's one attempt to get at this. But I think, I think, you know, creative institutions are going to be looking at ways, maybe in partnership with employers, maybe in partnership with each other, um, but looking for ways to address what that's going to mean if people really are going to live to 106. And and that's going to, you know, I think the the 18 to 21 or 22-year-old, you know, some people call it the coming-of-age experience. I think, you know, a lot of us found that to be extremely valuable. I, I don't think for, for a lot of people, I don't think that's going to go away, that that's still part of becoming an adult. Um, and a very valuable way that goes way beyond the classroom. So I think there'll be an amount of that, but I think there are things, you know, what we call continuing education. It'll take on different names um, for people, uh, probably more effective ways to help people with, quote, some college but no degree, get back on track and finish a degree, um, creative ways to help people change careers that don't involve getting a second degree. I think the master's degree is going to be, I don't know if it's going to be, but I, I would look there for change as well. I think we're seeing changes already. We see through edX, we see what they call a micromasters. Um, and, and I took an edX course, by the way, and loved it. And it was, it was actually turns out to be, have been taught by the two people who won the um, Nobel prize for economics this year. Uh, it was on the economics of poverty. Um, it was great. So, you know, I think there are going to be more ways to learn throughout, you know, for interest and um, and for professional development, for switching careers. Um, I think as retirement changes, that's going to mean things for colleges and universities. It's going to be opportunities and for public institutions, also responsibilities. Thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to know about your series, and, and I've enjoyed our conversation, and I wish you all the best. <laughs>